Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. What I'm describing is anti-Semitism. It's a new form of anti-Semitism with new characteristics, but it's in the nature of anti-Semitism to hijack the latest current discourse. In, in the medieval times, Jews were hated in the language of religion. In the 20th century, it was the language of pseudoscience. But what's on the up is political rhetoric is the rhetoric of social justice, of anti-racism. And that's where you find Israelophobia. That is where the new anti-Semitism is now finding a foothold. Hello, welcome back to the Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill, and my special guest this week, Jake Wallace-Simons. Jake, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you on. This is your first time on the pod. Um, some listeners will be familiar with you as the editor of the Jewish Chronicle, which of course is the world's oldest Jewish newspaper. And when they listen to this pod, they'll also be familiar with you as the author of an excellent new book called Israelophobia, the newest version of the oldest hatred and what to do about it. There is so much in this book. It's packed with information and opinion and analysis of the extraordinary hostility to Israel that exists in certain sections of society. Um, so I've got lots of questions I want to ask you, but I want to start off by asking you about the title of the book, Israelophobia, because you know that's a controversial word. You have a whole chapter called What is Israelophobia, outlining it very clearly. Um, you know what people say. People say, listen, there's a difference between hating Jews and criticizing Israel. There's a difference between hating a race of people and hating a nation state. So how, how do you define Israelophobia and, and what do you say in response to those people who say, listen, criticizing countries is what we do in everyday discussion? Thanks, Brendan. Well, I think that uh, you've really put your finger on the, the, the nub of the book straight off the bat, which is, you know, why the need to have this new term of Israelophobia. And partly it was a response to the muddiness of the debate Whenever you have somebody who is has clearly got a screw loose when it comes to Israel, swivel-eyed, venomous hatred spewing out all over their timeline, let alone in real life, um, the, the debate becomes muddy from the word go. Somebody says to them, you're clearly anti-Semitic, to which they respond, no, I'm not. I'm only anti-Zionist. And here is my eccentric, fringe, far-left Jewish friend who agrees with me, so therefore I can't be anti-Semitic because I've got at least one friend. As if, you know, having having one Jewish friend is the price that you pay to not be called anti-Semitic, you know. Um, and then the debate become, becomes not about how much hatred they have and the lies that they're propagating and the disproportionality and the demonization and the general bigotry. It becomes about whether anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism or not. And what I'm trying to do with the word Israelophobia is to say, look, let's look at how you're behaving. Let's look at your attitude. You clearly hate this one country more than any other country in the world. You criticize it. If you criticize every country in the world in the way that you criticize Israel, you criticize everything all the time. There'd be no room for <laughs> to sleep, you know. Um, so let's just isolate that debate and look at the facts. You're filled with bigotry. You're filled with hatred. That is Israelophobia. So um, one thing you describe very well, and you've just touched on it there, is the level of passion that people feel when they talk about their loathing for Israel. I mean, it is distinct from their attitude to every other country, even countries that they are critical of as well. For example, the United States, you'll often meet leftists, radical leftists who will say, I hate America. It's so brash. It's imperialistic. It's run by buffoons and, and semi-fascists like Donald Trump. Even though they will say things like that about the United States, still, when it comes to Israel, there's a turning point in the way in which they speak. There's a turning point in the language they use and the intensity of their opposition and their criticism and their loathing. 
I've seen that myself on demonstrations. Um, I've been on many demonstrations over the past few years against Israel to observe them, not to take part in them. And I've been really shocked by some of the stuff I've seen. I've seen placards calling Israel Christ killers. I've seen people wearing Jew masks. Uh, at one of the huge demonstrations in Hyde Park, I saw a young man in a Jew mask. He had a mask on with a huge nose and he was pretending to eat a doll that was covered in blood. Um, and I've seen lots of other incredibly sordid things. Of course, the thing you see frequently on anti-Israel demonstrations is um, the swastika and the accusation that Israel is now behaving in the way in which uh, the Nazis once did. So all of that doesn't, all of that points to something visceral, doesn't it? Something that is far beyond the realm of normal political critique and has really crossed the line, as you suggest in this book, into prejudice and bigotry and racism. That's right. I mean, the other important thing to to say about my book is that it's not the case for Israel. You know, that's, that's been done by Adam Dershowitz years ago. It's not making a pro-Israel argument. Um, it's simply trying to identify the point at which reasonable fact-based criticism about Israel, which I'm totally for, tips over and becomes a sort of ventriloquist dummy for the oldest hatred. Um, and, you know, the, the, the subtitle of the book is the newest version of the oldest hatred and what to do about it. And it's important to say that what I'm describing is anti-Semitism. It's not something new. It's, it's a new form of anti-Semitism with new characteristics. But that's it's in the nature of anti-Semitism to evolve and to morph and to respond and to hijack the modern, the, the, the latest current discourse. You know, in the in the in the med in, in the medieval times, Jews were hated in the language of religion as as the Christ killers uh, and as the infidels in in Islamic societies. In the twentieth century, it was the language of pseudoscience. It was racial theory. Jews were the, the, the subhuman race that needed to be exterminated for the good of humankind. That was, was uh, discredited after the Holocaust in the West, at least. There's a decline of religion and Christianity in the West. Uh, but what's on the up is political rhetoric, is the rhetoric of social justice, of anti-racism. And that's where you find Israelophobia. That's where you find anti-Semitism taking on that new language so that you get lies, blatant lies, such as Israel is a white supremacist country, regardless of the fact that most Israelis are non-white, that Israel is perpetrating a genocide, regardless of the fact that the Palestinian population has increased fivefold since Israel's establishment, um, that Israel is a colonialist enterprise, despite the fact that it is clearly a post-colonial state, historically. Those sorts of, of, of lies, these are the greatest sins of the social justice movement, of the, the current identitarian politics, which is dominating the discourse. And that is where the new anti-Semitism is now finding a foothold. Um, and so, as you say, it's a, it's a short hop, skip and a jump from the language of anti-racism um, to racism. It's the, it's, it's, it's the Jew mask with the child, you know, eating that doll with the fake blood that you said, which is clearly a medieval anti-Semitic image that somehow has become part of this anti-racist movement. It's extraordinary. It's this moral inversion, which has been described by uh, scholars and academics over the years as being a hallmark of anti-Semitism. You know, Hannah Arendt, for example, in her brilliant book about Eichmann, talks about how during the Nazi period, there was this moral inversion whereby the SS, SS officers and their handlers were told that what you're doing is for the good of society. And so evil lost that quality by which we, we, we recognize it, which is the quality of temptation. You know, people weren't bothered. It, it wasn't a, a, an idea of I've got to resist the temptation to kill. It's I've got to resist the temptation not to kill. You know, that kind of inversion that took place during the Second World War and in medieval times now is, is still there today. It's, it's an extraordinary moral inversion that we're contending with. That's very well put. And I, I want to come back to that question of the strange relationship between anti-racism and anti-Semitism, between anti-racism and racism, which I think is 
really interesting and curious and something worth digging into. I'll come back to that in a moment. I want to touch on the question of mutation, the mutation of anti-Semitism, which you've just spoken about there. And in the book, you quote the late uh, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, who said, um, as you just articulated, in the Middle Ages, Jews were hated for because of their religion. In the 19th and 20th centuries, they were hated because of for their race. And now they're hated for their nation, their nation state, for their homeland, for the Jewish state. And you describe very well the way in which the hatred mutates over time. It, it takes on different justifications and different um, uh, 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 facades to present this uh, what, underneath what is a kind of lingering hostility towards Jewish people. But I wanted to ask you why you think that hostility lingers. Why does it carry on through the ages in the way that it does? What does anti-Semitism speak to in our societies to such an extent that, as you say, it's this is the newest version of the oldest hatred. This is a hatred that's been around for a long time, and it c- continues to mutate and take on different expressions. What is it answering in its warped way in our society that this racism can c- carry on in the way that it does? I think that the conception of the Jew, as it, uh, uh, that, that hate figure, that, that demonized figure, is a very alluring one because that figure represents the center of absolute loathing and absolute envy. Um, and that really is rooted in the West in our Christian origin, our Christian roots, which still, despite the fact that we are on the whole a secular society now, pervades the way that we think. It's our cultural inheritance. It's part of our of our DNA, of our mental DNA. And, you know, Christianity took the Jewish homeland and made it the Christian holy land. It took the, the Ten Commandments and made that the foundation of Christianity. It took the holy, Jewish holy city of Jerusalem and made it the Christian location of, of, uh, the, of Jerusalem, you know, the Jerusalem of William Blake. And it took a Jewish prophet and made him the son of God. And the idea that the chosen people that God chose could then kill Christ really epitomizes this idea of envy and loathing. And over the centuries, that was responsible for huge amounts of bloodshed, massacre, expulsion, dehumanization, marginalization, all across Christendom. And those tropes don't just go away. You know, we had a a, a few weeks ago when Israeli forces engaged in a counter-terror operation in Jenin, in which they killed zero civilians. You know, by comparison, the Battle of Jenin in the early 2000s, many civilians were killed. It was a huge outrage and created a lot of destruction. They learned from that this time round with intelligence, with drones, with pinpoint accuracy. They killed zero civilians. Nonetheless, because one or two of the terrorist combatants were 17, not 18, This led a BBC presenter to insist on air that Israeli forces are happy to kill children. It's a direct quote. It's easy to see how that is a reflection of what's in the air in our society, which is the medieval blood libel, the idea that Jews kill children. They drink their blood, they use their blood in their ritual cooking and so on and so forth. And there's been, I mean, uh, there's been a fascinating study by a couple of German economists into um, the, the fact that areas of Germany, which in the 14th century burned Jews at the stake because they blamed them for the Black Death, those same areas were more likely to vote for the Nazis 600 years later. And that's despite the fact that in 400 of those years, the Jews were not present in those areas they'd left. This just goes to show how for whatever reason, how deeply embedded this psychological need for Jew hatred, it's it's such a tentative, it's an intoxication. And so I think Israelophobia 
channels all of that in a way that has become palatable once again to the modern mind. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Hi, it's Brendan here. I just wanted to remind you that you can still buy my book. It's called A Heretic's Manifesto, Essays on the Unsayable. And I've really been blown away by the response to it from readers, reviewers, Spike supporters. People really like this book, and I think you're going to like it too. It covers all the insanities of our time, from climate change hysteria through to COVID authoritarianism, through to the trans ideology. And it basically makes the case for more freedom of speech, more debate, and more heretical thinking to challenge the conformism of our times. So what are you waiting for? Go to Amazon right now and order my book, A Heretic's Manifesto, Essays on the Unsayable. And now on with the show. I I want to ask you about some of the facts on Israel. Um, You've touched on them uh, to a certain extent in terms of the myth of Israel as this uniquely barbaric, colonialist, racist enterprise. I mean, people will just say that all the time. This is the apartheid state. This is the most racist state. Zionism is equated with racism all the time. You know, they are inseparable in some people's minds. And we hear that so often in uh, political discourse, particularly from the left, but in other circles as well. And what's one thing that's very useful about your book is that you outline some of the facts about Israel. And one that really stood out for me, which I should have known, but it was it's very starkly put, which is that in Israel's wars over the past 75 years, Around 86,000 Arabs have died. And that's actually people, including Israelis. So 20, more than 20,000 of those were Israeli combatants. Right. So 86,000 people uh, over a, a long period in numerous conflicts. And then you compare that with other conflicts, including the Afghanistan war, the, the U, US UK intervention there, and the fallout from that, the Syrian war, of course, of uh, a very recent. Um, the Iraq war from 2003 onwards, we all know the disastrous consequences that had right through, you talk about the Iran-Iraq war of the 1980s, and then of course the fallout from Britain's partition of India in the 1940s. All of these other conflicts have had vastly more casualties and fatalities than Israel's numerous conflicts over a 75-year period. Um, Very clearly laid out, unanswerable, I would say, to the um, anti-Zionists as they fashion themselves. You also talk about on university campuses the way in which there is an Israel apartheid week. And you can just imagine the impact that has on Jewish students, where every single year they have this um, these performative denunciations of Israel as a uniquely apartheid state. And as you say, there is no China apartheid week, despite China's barbaric treatment of the Uyghur Muslim people. There's no Syria apartheid week, uh, despite uh, the Syrian regime's treatment of certain minority groups, including Kurdish people. So there's very useful information and facts in your book, as well as the excellent analysis. And I just wanted to ask you why you, what you think are the most important facts to challenge the presentation of Israel as uh, the most barbaric, most apartheid-like state, and why you think those, sometimes it's hard to get those facts to cut through. Is it just that the psychological loathing for Israel is so intense that it can be hard to challenge it, even with factual information? Well... I think that the fact that you mentioned the stats about combat casualties, 86,000 Jews and Arabs killed in all of Israel's wars in 75 years. By comparison, I mean, the partition of India, which you you mentioned, is a a fascinating comparable because it happened just a few months away from the the creation of Israel in 1947. Um, The creation of Israel created 700,000 Palestinian refugees, after which... 900,000 Jewish refugees were created when they were expelled from Arab lands. Four million people were displaced in the, in the partition of India and Pakistan. You know, the, something like 15,000 people were killed in the war, Israel's war of independence. More than a million were killed in the partition of India and Pakistan. Um, 
I feel like I have to pause to let that sink in. I mean, it's, it's just astonishing, isn't it? Astonishing. You know, the Iraq invasion, something, you know, Britain and, and, and America's invasion led America uh, invasion of Iraq in 2003. Between 200,000 and 600,000 people were killed in three years. In three years. The Syrian war, about 10 years, half a million people were killed. Um, not to mention the Ukraine war, what, 150,000 people have been killed, something like that so far. Wherever you look, the Israeli conflict is, is dwarfed, 86,000 people on both sides. That's an important fact to get across. There are other facts too, um, such as, um, you know, the, the, the apartheid idea, Israel being an apartheid state. Most footballers on the Israeli national team have been of Arab descent. An, a, an Arab Supreme Court judge sentenced a former Israeli prime minister to prison for corruption. An Arab heads Israel's largest national bank. This is untrue. It's clearly untrue. The genocide allegation, which I mentioned earlier, the Arab population has increased fivefold since Israel's establishment. That, that's a pretty bad genocide. You know, the, these facts, I mean, and even, even smaller things like Israel has been recognized by the United Nations as the fourth happiest country in the world behind Finland, Denmark, and Iceland. People don't think that that could possibly be the case. They have this image of war-torn, horrendous Israel. Um, and I think that the reason why people, why these facts do not sink in, why people still say it's an apartheid, racist, you know, white supremacist regime, is because in a way there are two Israels. You know, Saul Bellow wrote about this in his beautiful book about Jerusalem that was published in the 70s. He talked about there's a, an, an Israel of facts, which is territorially insignificant. I mean, it occupies more than a, less than a, a, about a quarter of 1% of the Middle East. A quarter of 1% of the Middle East is, is Israel. Not significant. Population about, about the size of London, maybe smaller than London. Amount of deaths, as I said, proportionately small. But then there's a second Israel, which is the Israel of the imagination, of the, uh, of the mind. And in Sorbello's words, he describes it as being as broad as all of history and as deep as sleep. This is the Israel of the imagination, and that is the Israel that animates people's loathing and, and, and disgust and envy perhaps an equal measure, in the same way as it has towards Jews over the centuries. Yeah, I want to ask you about um, what it is about Israel. I mean, it's it's so fascinating to me, but one thing that you touch on the book, there was a paragraph that leapt out at me, and this is, it's an idea that I've, um, has crossed my mind before, but you put it incredibly well, which is that um, what's different about Israel is that this is this this is not the Jewish people that some some of us in the in the Western world have the mental image of. Our mental image of Jewish people is that they're downtrodden, they're the victims of pogroms. They were for hundreds and hundreds of years. They they're the people who queued up for the gas chambers. We see that in movies. We see it in imagery. That's that that's an image people have. And you get to Israel, and as you point out, these are a, a different kind of people. And you say, you have this funny line where you say, they're a long way from the self-hating Woody Allen stereotype. These are largely Jewish people, of course, who are assertive, they're patriotic, they're physically strong, they're happy. Um, as someone who has traveled around Israel, I can uh, attest to that. That that is That has very much been my experience. Um, I was especially struck by the young people in Israel. Um, I met some young um, members of the IDF, the Israel Defense Forces. We're talking 19, 20 year olds doing their national service, young men, young women. And I was struck by how different they were to 19 and 20 year olds in parts of the UK. And I'm sure in the United States as well, there wasn't much of that victim politics um, they weren't really self-absorbed. They were quite confident. They were obviously armed. They were engaged in um, either military activities or peacekeeping activities. So to what extent do you think that Israel challenges the people's preconceptions of Jews? People, I guess some people are okay with Jews when they're victims, but less so when they're standing up for themselves and being pretty assertive. That's right. In fact, there's the, um, that book by the American writer Dara Horn, where she 
called uh, called uh, People Love Dead Jews. And the kicker is living Jews, not so much. You know. Um, in fact, I was in Israel just a few weeks ago with my kids and my daughter, who's 13, was there for the first time. She came away saying um, her observation was that in Israel, people have a reason to live there. They have a reason to live. In, in Britain, she was saying, why do we live here? And this is, uh, I'm not, this is through her eyes, you know. She felt, why do I live in Britain? It, just because it's nice, because it's free. Like, what, what, am I stand, what are my values? What am I standing up for? And, you know, in Israel, there is a great sense, amongst the Jewish population at least, of, um, of cultural coherence, of societal coherence, of, of you know, social responsibility, sacrificing yourself for the good of others, of... of um, and that's, that can be quite powerful. It's something that we really miss, I think, in, in Britain. But, you know, the Jewish paradigm um, of Woody Allen, of, of Larry David, of um, Seinfeld, of, of Groucho Marx, it's a wonderful one. And I don't mean to, to diminish it at all. Um, it was, it's the foundation of American pop culture. You know, Jews wrote all the Christmas songs and created all the Broadway musicals and crazy all the superheroes and all that stuff and, and the comedy, American comedy. Um, but in a way it's sort of, it derives its, its self-deprecation from centuries of persecution in Eastern Europe. And it's interesting that the early Zionists, when they began to, you know, in the, in the 19th century, when they began to respond to these horrendous pogroms where a mob would descend upon a Jewish shtetl or village and the men would run to the synagogue to protect the Torah scrolls. Women would be raped and lynched. The men would have their throats slit in the synagogue. They were responding to that. And they were, their view was that the Judaism that predominated then of study, of the intellect, of physical weakness, of sort of short-sighted, hair-splitting, Talmudic hair-splitting, they saw that as a degeneration from the real Judaism. And the real Jewish paradigm, they believed, was the Jews of the Bible, the, yeah, the, Jew, the, the Jews of King David, of, of the, the kingdom of Israel, where Jews stood up for themselves, defended their lands, had pride, and gave the world a book of law and monotheism and, and, and a cultural richness which has not been paralleled. Um, and so the, the sort of impetus for Zionism in the beginning was to return to that spirit uh, and to sort of try to uh, dilute the, 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 the sort of Talmudic-inspired culture. Um, and, you know, fast forward to the present day, and we can see that, I mean, you know, Israel is the probably the only country in the world that was intellectually designed. It was designed by a novel, by Herzl's novel, The Jewish State, it was in modern Hebrew was 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 it was intellect was created by people. It it was Israeli culture of of farming of 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 of, um, of self defense of hardiness. Uh, uh, you know, that that tradition was was taken from olden times and reinvented by intellectuals. And that state that exists today and that is so so is a regional superpower and so influential. Uh, is is a rebuke to 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 the haters, as it were. You know, as you, as I've said, you know, people love dead Jews, but living Jews, what do we do with those? You know, when the Israeli Air Force swoops over Auschwitz to, to assert never again, what do the haters make of that? You know, Roald Dahl, you know, he famously was anti-Semitic, famously criticised the Jews lining up for the gas chambers, saying, oh, if it was me, I'd take a few of them with me. And yet he loathed Israel as well, you know. It's that double action against Jews. It's the, the hatred of the Jewish victim, but then the suspicion of the Jewish, of the, of the Jew who was, refuses to be a victim. Um, that defines attitudes towards Israel today. Yeah, that's that's very well. That's a good line. That's very well put. And um, I wanted to kind of push pushing on from that. I wanted to ask you what role you think um, the accusation of Israel being the new Nazis plays in Israelophobia. You talk about this in your book. I think it's a it's a key element of a lot of this, and there's often discussions about whether it's anti-Semitic or not anti-Semitic to compare Israel to the Nazis. To my mind, it is unquestionably anti-Semitic. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that I think it should be censored. I'm a bit of a free speech fundamentalist. I think even prejudiced ideas should be given free reign, all the better that we can expose them and challenge them and take them down. 
Um, but it seems unquestionable to me that if you are calling Gaza the new Warsaw ghetto, which I've seen people do, uh, on the basis of no evidence whatsoever, obviously people are not in Gaza being prepared for uh, death. That's not what's happening. Or if you say that every time Israel launches a military strike, even one that doesn't have a significant number of casualties and sometimes doesn't have any uh, casualties at all, that's reminiscent of uh, Nazi expansionism, Nazi militarism and so on. There's something very dark going on there, isn't there? Because essentially what you're saying to these people is you have become just like the people who tried to wipe you from the face of the earth. I mean, it is just about the lowest thing that can be said to the Jewish state and its population, isn't it? It is. You know, the, the definition that I give of Israelophobia is a tripartite one in the book. It says the first um, uh, distinguishing characteristic is demonization. The second is weaponization, by which I mean assuming the language, the current, you know, the current acceptable language, which these days is social justice language. We talked about that. But the third is falsification. And that, to me, is the real heart of things. It's building a, a damning verdict against Israel on lies. And one of those lies is that Israel behaves in the same way as the Nazis behaved. It is clearly a lie. There's no concentration camps in the Jewish state. There are no summary executions. There is no fascism. There is no racial segregation. Um, there is no Nazism. And like you say, I think there's a particular glee that comes from, 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 from in the mind of the person who hits on the brilliant idea of describing Jews as Nazis. And it's such a delegitimizing argument to make. Um, you know, just as we destroyed the Nazis, now we have to destroy the Jews. And the irony is the kind of icing on the cake, you know, similar to the apartheid accusation, you know, it worked against the South African regime, this popular movement of anti-apartheid. Let's use it against the Jews. The fact that the Israel does not conform. Yeah, look, I'm not saying that Israel doesn't have problems with racism. Any, I mean, every country does, and particularly one's in that part of the world. I'm not saying that it's all rosy, but apartheid, there is none. But if you, you know, get some images of, of the West Bank, get some images of Palestinians waiting at a border crossing, get, blur your eyes a bit, and yeah, it, you can kind of see that you could call that apartheid. Forget, don't, just sideline the facts. It looks and feels like apartheid, partly because this sort of stuff feels right because of centuries of anti-Semitism. So let's use that label and it will help bring Israel down. Um, so I think that, you know, these lies, really Israelophobia is based on lies. That's its core characteristic. And interestingly, all of those lies, pretty much, that Zionism is racism, that Israel is a white settler state, that it's colonialist, that it engages in apartheid, that it behaves like the Nazis did, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. All of those were created by Soviet propagandists during the Cold War and a vast effort, huge resources of millions of dollars were put into spreading those lies around the world, seeding them in the West by way of publications that were funded by the Soviets, some of, some of whom Jeremy Corbyn was involved with, Soviet Weekly, Morning Star, radio broadcasts, trying to get these sort of fake news articles in the New York Times, they succeeded in that, for example, one, one year, in getting a, um, an article which promoted, which suggested that Zionism was racism into the New York Times. Huge propaganda effort. All of these things were invented by the Soviets, seeded into the, into the, into the West via the left, and have taken root and flowered today. Uh, okay, you, you mentioned Jeremy Corbyn there. So I want to um, come on to that issue, uh, not just Corbyn himself, but the Corbynista movement, I guess, um, where there were strong elements of the socialism of fools, to use an old Marxist term from the early 20th century, which uh, listeners may be familiar, that's where a so-called radical position, a so-called anti-capitalist position is actually anti-Semitism in disguise. It, it sees the Jews as the puppet masters of uh, capitalist society, modern society, and hates them for that reason. So there's that kind of 
uh, left-wing tradition, for want of a better word, of anti-Semitism too. And there were definitely expressions of that in the radical left in the UK over the past few years. And and there still is, that you can still see that. Um, there was one part of your book which I actually found quite shocking, which is where you're talking about Corbyn and you're talking about the way in which one of the strange things about Israelophobia or one of the ironies of it is that people will often present themselves as being friendly towards Jewish people. They'll, as you said earlier on in our discussion, I've got Jewish friends. I, I know Jewish people. They're, they're lovely. Um, but then they have this extreme hostility towards the Jewish state. And you give this example where Jeremy Corbyn could make great play of the fact that he has a Passover mill with Judas, which is a uh, British listeners might know Judas is a hard left um, organization, largely focused on on the issue of Israel and the problem of Israel. And you quote Judas, one of their statements about Israel, where they said Israel is a steaming pile of sewage, which needs to be properly disposed of. And I wasn't aware previously of that comment that Judas had made. And it was quite alarming to me that the leader of the Labour Party the former leader of the Labour Party, would um, happily have a Passover meal or any kind of meal with an organisation that had said something just so poisonous about an ally of the UK, whether Jeremy Corbyn is happy about that or not. So just um, talk a little bit about how you think the socialism of fools, as some of us refer to it, or you might just see it as plain old anti-Semitism disguised as anti-Zionism, on sections of the radical left in the UK. How problematic do you think that was? How serious do you think that was? And and what impact did that have? You will know this as the editor of the Jewish Chronicle. What impact did that have on British Jews and how they conceive of themselves in this country? Well, I mean, you're, you're right to pull up that example. It was a very, very vivid one. That example of Jeremy Corbyn having Passover dinner with Judas. Judas is a Jewish group of fringe radical leftists, which account for a tiny minority of, of, of the Jewish community, tiny. Um, I mean, that was his attempt to demonstrate that he wasn't anti-Semitic. And he, and he said, look, I've had a Passover Seder. And they, you know, they sort of spread it all across social media. He's with Judas and he's along with these Jews and it's all great. I think the hard left, because of the history, because of the Soviet influence, of anti, anti-Zionism, they would call it, I suppose, has been the entry point of Israelophobia into the mainstream, uh, in, both in Britain and in, in the United States and elsewhere. Um, and it's the, um, you know, what began as quite a fringe position has crept into the mainstream as the mainstream has been radicalised by the rise of identity politics and radical leftism. You know, the, the, the current dominant ideology that is, is, is held very strongly by the elites who sit at the top of our institutions, the university-educated, liberal, uh, city-dwelling progressives, um, who are increasingly ideologues, um, their worldview is a, 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 a sort of toxic combination of um, the of, of critical race theory, of um, identity politics, of a, an attempt to undo Western history and Western um, self confidence, and old fashioned socialism. It's this sort of old identity politics meets old fashioned socialism. It's it's Jeremy Corbyn and his young social media native followers. In that, in that single movement. Um, and one of their suite of beliefs, or which are called you know, luxury beliefs by uh, that American psychologist, uh, which are, they're called luxury because they're taken on as markers of identity, not out of any moral conviction. Um, one of those is being anti-Israel, I suppose. It is Israelophobia. It sits alongside anti-colonialism, anti-racism, um, and so forth. Um, and so what, what became, what, what began as a Soviet propaganda campaign during the cold war 
was taken on into the milieu of the old-fashioned socialists who sat in, you know, sort of Quaker meeting rooms in Islington and drank cold tea and ranted with their little red book in their hand, and then was catapulted into the mainstream, really, in Britain anyway, in 2015, when Jeremy Corbyn rose to, to, to become leader of the, of the party, uh, joined forces with identity politics and has now become, or is becoming, this this dominant progressive orthodoxy that is is disseminated is cascaded down the institutions which are dominated by the elites and promoted on in, in adverts in 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 you know museums in cinema in film um, and so and sadly uh, uh, Israelophobia is is a key part of that suite of beliefs and it really shows how once again Jews are in the firing line of this attempt to overturn liberal values tax day is coming oh no but if you sign up for robin hood gold's ira with a three percent match you can get up to 195 dollars for the 2023 tax year oh yeah sign up at robinhood.com slash boost by tax day to get the biggest contribution match on the market subscription fees apply you know you investing involves risk three percent match requires gold for one year from first match must keep ira for five years Robinhood financial llc member sipc if you're a regular listener to this show or a regular reader of Spiked, why not become a Spiked supporter? Spiked Supporters is our thriving community of people who donate to Spiked. Anyone who gives £5 or more a month or £50 or more a year can become a Spiked supporter and get access to lots of exciting perks. Spiked supporters can comment on articles, get free and discounted tickets to events, get a discount on all items in our shop and bookmark articles as you browse. This is our way of saying thank you to all of you who fund our work. Spiked is completely free, and yet you still hand over your hard-earned cash to make sure that anyone, anywhere can read us and listen to us. We're incredibly grateful for your generosity. If you don't give to Spiked yet, now is the perfect time to start. Just go to spiked-online.com slash supporters to set up your donation and your Spike supporters account. That's spiked-online.com slash supporters. Yeah, the, the the parts of the book where you talk about um, luxury beliefs, the rise of identity politics, and these these new ideologies, which are particularly pronounced on university campuses, as you point out, you you give you lay out all all the stats about the um the shift from universities being fairly equally balanced between right wing professors and left wing professors to now being i think 90% people who identify as left or identify as progressive whatever whatever that means these days um yeah those parts of the book uh, really hit home with me as someone who writes about identity politics quite a lot and you talk there about the um how Jews lose out as a consequence of this. And I did want to ask you about that. And this is something that David Baddiel writes about too, um, where Jews come to be seen not only as white, but as super white, the whitest of the white, the most white people you can imagine um, within the hierarchy of identity. So we all know that these new ideologues have fashioned a hierarchy of identity where there are supposedly oppressed groups in society who we must sympathize with and show support for. I guess that would include the Muslim community in Britain, I don't know, trans people, um, whoever else it might be. And then higher up the hierarchy are the privileged people, which are cis-normative, heteronormative, whatever that means. But also white people, of course, white men and Jewish people. Uh, you know, I often think the radical left is just a hair's breadth away from saying the phrase Jewish privilege, which is something you're more likely to hear amongst the kind of uh, far right, uh, especially in the United States, where the far right talks about Jewish privilege all the time. But on the radical left, there is a species of that, this idea that at the top of the um, uh, the food chain, there are white people and there are Jewish people and they are hyper-privileged. So isn't one of the problems facing, I guess, Jewish people within British society and other Western countries too, is is the thing that gets presented to us as anti-racism. Now, 30 or 40 or 50 years ago, genuine, noble anti-racism would have, would have included a critique 
of anti-Semitism. It would have included a critique of racism against Jews. But often today, what is presented to us as anti-racism is often the foundation stone for a new demonization of Jewish people as being hyper-privileged and therefore problematic and therefore deserving of a certain element of, of social scorn, I guess. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that, that the uh, Jewish privilege idea, because that as a hashtag a couple of years ago was hijacked by Jews who posted on social media examples of family members who'd been killed in the Holocaust and in the pogroms and, and, and discriminated against at universities or attacked in the street with the hashtag Jewish privilege to make that point. But, you know, let's, I mean, let's take it back. So, you know, civil rights movement, Martin Luther King, Jews were a staunch ally of Martin Luther King, and he was a staunch ally of Jews. You know, synagogues were attacked by the Ku Klux Klan because Jewish leaders stood shoulder to shoulder with, with, with black people in, in America. Martin Luther King famously stood up for Jews who were being oppressed at the time in the Soviet Union um, and criticized people who didn't do that as tender turtles was the, was the phrase, memorable phrase that he used. Fast, you know, a, a Jewish songwriter wrote Strange Fruit, you know, that famous civil rights, powerful civil rights um, song. Then came Malcolm X, who became, you know, who sort of supplanted Martin Luther King as the, as the figurehead of, 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 of um, black liberation, uh, who was not a friend of the Jews. You know, his, his autobiography is, is filled with anti-Semitism, with Israelophobia. He talked about Zionist dollarism. Um, and suggested that Jews only supported the civil rights movement because they liked to distract attention from themselves and whatever it was, you know, lots of kind of conspiracy theories and quite unpleasant stuff. And this became radicalized uh, further with the advent of critical race theory, which, as you know, you know, equated um, racism with, with power and all the rest of it. And as soon as you mention power, you know that a few sentences later, anti-Semitism is going to arise because Jews and power, that is, that is the catnip to the anti-Semite. Um, you know, a Jew has only got to get a, a good job in finance to be, to be, to, to become part of the Jewish lobby. You know, nobody else has that. Um, and so if you, if you fast forward to today, you know, Whoopi Goldberg famously on, on, on American TV suggesting that the Holocaust wasn't about race because it didn't target black people. It was two groups of white people. I mean, it was explicitly about race. It was explicitly about race. Inferior race. We have our own Diana, Diane Abbott here in the UK writing that letter to the Observer a few weeks ago saying that Jews cannot be victims of racism. They can only be victims of prejudice like people who have red hair. I mean, it's, I'm, I'm sort of laughing as I'm saying it. It's, it's, it's absurd. Jews are, are, you know, are being denied, you know, d denied the ability to be targets of racism. Um, and it's not, not an ability that I particularly welcome or want. But if it happens, I want to be able to name it. Um, if you can't name it, what can you do about it? Um, and, you know, we had... As an example, a couple of years ago in, in Crown Heights in New York, where Jews were being attacked and the local community leader blamed those attacks, those street attacks, not on anti-Semitism, but on the fact that Jews were hyper white. So they deserved it because they were hyper white, you know, and I think Israel does play into a lot of this because as we talked about earlier, Israel changed the Jewish paradigm from being the victim to the victor. And as soon as Jews, and Israel is a powerful nation in the region, it's the regional superpower, and thank God for that. But as soon as Jews take on any position of strength or security, uh, that feeds into the ancient anti-Semitic tropes of Jews as the controlling force of the world behind um, you know, pulling the strings of finance, of the media, you know, Hitler, uh, uh, dis describe the allied forces as being controlled by Jews. You know, the Jews were behind the Second World War. They were behind Britain, behind the Soviets, the twin citadels of Jewish power, as he put it. Um, and so this has a long anti-Semitic tradition, and it, it's just astonishing to me, even now talking about it, that, that it has infected what is supposed to be an anti-racist movement to the extent that it has. 
Yeah, I think uh, uh, something you said there really hit home with me because it, it's it's often struck me the extent to which um, old-fashioned anti-Semitism projects itself very well onto the newfangled anti-Zionism or Israelophobia, as you describe it in your book, in the sense that not only the blood libel is resuscitated, as you said earlier on, in, in, the, in this poisonous idea um, that Israel loves killing children and is happy to kill children, um, but also in the idea of Israel as the puppet master of world affairs, the controller of mighty Britain and mighty America. Israel is always in the background kind of pulling the strings. We see that in cartoons, we see it in political commentary, this notion that Israel is controlling everything, essentially. Um, and Israel also is the disruptor of world peace, this kind of um, very disorientating force. And life would be grand for all of us if only this pesky little state didn't exist. So uh, all of the things that were traditionally said about Jewish people and their um, disorientating impact in the societies in which they lived has now been said about Israel. So it's it's very clearly, I think, as you articulate very well in the book, we're witnessing a rehabilitation of the old hatred in, in, in a new way. Um, I want to, just a couple more questions I want to put to you. I want to ask you about the settlements um, in parts of uh, Palestinian territory, parts of the West Bank. I've, I speak as someone who's been to a couple of settlements. I've been to one on kind of on the outskirts of Jerusalem and then, and then one further into the West Bank. Um, I found them to be interesting places. I found them to be, to be very curious places, if I'm being honest. These are not the kind of places I'm used to visiting. I was very pleased to meet people from Hendon and Edgware in, in one of the West Bank um, settlements, and uh, including people who went to some of the pubs I used to go to when I grew up in northwest London. So that was, that was uh, interesting and entertaining. What's your view on the settlements? Because it seems to me that um, there is an element of Israelophobia where the most intense expressions of it get projected onto the settlements. So there are, I think there are probably some clued up sections of society who probably know at some level that you can't spend your whole life attacking the Jewish state because that would look a bit suspicious. But they do attack Jewish settlements as the most obscene expression of colonialism in the modern world. Do you see the hostility to settlements in parts of the West Bank as a as an extension of Israelophobia, or do you think what's your view on settlements? Do you think there is a there is a discussion to be had about their existence and what happens with them in the future? I think. I mean, the first thing to say is that I think it's perfectly legitimate to criticise the settlements and and settlers. Um, I mean, to, to, to suggest otherwise would be, would be absurd. Um, the people who live on, on, on the West Bank in those communities, that they're, they're not generally of, you know, my sort of people. I'm not religious. Many of them are. Um, I wouldn't, if I took my family to live in Israel, I wouldn't choose to place them there in harm's way in many cases. Um, they have a, a sort of uh, zealotry which I don't share. Um, having said that, you know, if if Israeli if Israelis are a hate are hate figures now, that are the new Jew, I suppose, the new Jew of the Western imagination, then the settlers are the hyper Jews. I mean, they are the people that you really are have free reign to put the boot into. You really do. Um, and nobody blinks an eyelid. Uh, we had a situation, you know, there was an attack a couple of months ago now of where Rabbi Leo D, who was British, his wife and two daughters were gunned down on the West Bank by a Palestinian terrorist. He lives there in Ephrat, uh, a settlement very close to Jerusalem. Um, and the, the level of dehumanization, you know, they deserved it. They deserved it. He was interesting, actually, because afterwards, he, his, the, the organs of, I think it was his wife, were donated to save the life of a Palestinian man. And he, he was pictured with his arm around this Palestinian. He shops in a, in a supermarket called Rami Levy, one of a chain of supermarkets nearby the settlement, which I've been to, where Palestinians and, and settlers shop together, you know, chat, live together. There's much more coexistence than one would think. I think that 
The settlements, I mean, it's, it's, it's complicated. Of course it is. And criticism is welcome uh, as its defence. The history is complicated. It, it is not a straightforward case of occupation like China, China's occupation of Tibet, which is horrendous, for example. But the one thing I would say that people might not have thought of is this. Why can Jews not live on the West Bank? What's the reason? What's the reason for that? You know, the original UN partition plan of 1947-48 made provision for an Israeli state with an Arab minority, which exists. 20% of Israelis are Arab. And it made provision for a Palestinian state with a Jewish minority. That doesn't exist because the extremist Palestinian leadership rejected that. But it's become a sort of assumption which nobody questions that Jews have no right to live there, even though it is the cradle of Jewish civilization. It has the, the, the graves of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are there and their wives. Bethlehem is there. I mean, that's Christian, but it's Jewish. Um, you know, if you said Muslims cannot live in Manchester, Hindus cannot live in Wales, Muslims cannot live in India, you know, the Chinese cannot live in Japan. But the Jews cannot live on the West Bank of the Jordan River. Why? Why does it have to be Judenrein in that way? You know, I was driving there just the other day with my kids. And outside Arab villages, there are big red signs, which I'm sure you saw, Brendan, when you were there, saying you are about to enter an Arab village. Entrance for, 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 for Israelis is dangerous. Turn back. Israelis have been lynched there. Uh, even uh, tourists have, have encountered lynch mobs and had to escape. I mean, why, why is that? There, there is no answer. You know, I, I understand criticisms of, of, of the radical settlers who attack Palestinians, uproot their olive trees, you know, um, seek to steal their land. I think they are beneath contempt. But why do Jews have no right to live there in peace? The answer is, I think we know. Yeah, I, th I I really agree with that. I I agree, firstly, that, of course, it's a perfectly legitimate point of discussion about the settlements, what purpose they serve, what, what their future might be. This is something that people should be free to talk about, of course. But at the same time, I really recognise your point about the way in which the inhabitants of the settlements are seen as, if, if Jews are hyper-white, then they are Hyper Jewish, and uh, I'm struck by some of the commentary on the set on settlers, which ironically has a very um, neo-colonialist feel to it. You know, they are treated, they are talked about in the way that I'm sure people in Africa were talked about 150 years ago by the colonial venturers who went there. You know, they are seen as these uh, almost subhuman people. If you read the commentary, you know, these pasty-faced. Um, strange, odd, violent people. I mean, there is this kind of uh, weird, old world, almost Victorian contempt for them, which I find very unsettling. And uh, at the same time, of course, a political discussion can be had, but ideally one that is not driven by prejudice and bigotry, which often seems to be the case. Um, okay, Jake, my final question for you, which I guess I'm asking you just so you can whet people's appetite. You can't answer this in, in, in one go, I don't think. Um, and people should definitely read your book to find out more. But I want to ask you what you think is is are some of the ways or, or one of the ways perhaps in which we might tackle this problem that we've been talking about, which sounds like an insurmountable problem. As you've said, it's got long historical roots. It mutates in various different ways. Um, it's incredibly, Israelophobia is incredibly influential in, uh, amongst the movers and shakers in the cultural elite and the media elites in, in the West. Um, it, towards the end of the book, you talk about the first step to tackling Israelophobia is identifying it. And you talk about the various different identification points one can make. You also talk about the pressure points where we can start to poke at it and, and really hopefully start to challenge it and take it down. But as, as a takeaway message for listeners, what would you say in terms of confronting these ideas when one encounters them? Well, I think the most of the battle lies in identifying this, this bigotry, this prejudice. 
anti-Semitism on the whole has a um, extraordinary ability to pass under the radar, to absorb itself into the culture without being recognised. Um, and anti-Semites themselves have always had a lack of ability to see into their own hearts and work out what's going on. Um, uh, I mean, there's a, a quote from George Orwell in his essay on anti-Semitism where he talked about people saying, um, God, I, I can't abide the Jews. I'm not anti-Semitic, of course. Something like that. I mean, even yeah, that's it's crude, but that's how people are. You know, I can't stand Israel, but I don't, you know, of course I'm not anti-Semitic. Smitty. And I think that recognizing it, using that the, 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 the definition that I've described of demonizing Israel, you know, why do you, why do you criticize Israel for, you know, uh, in a way that you would never criticize any other country in the world? Which, I mean, it can be institutionalized. You know, there's the United Nations Human Rights Council, which exists as a body to police human rights around the world has mandated in its rules that at every single session, there is one topic it must discuss, regardless of what's happening in the world, one topic it must discuss and have a guess what that is. It leads to the, the absurdity of, you know, 2019, for example, the height of the, of, the, of the Uyghur genocide that China was carrying out with concentration camps, with mass sterilizations, with forced arrests and torture and murder. People were demonstrating outside the building at which the UNHCR was meeting to demand that it addressed the Uyghur genocide. And instead, they spent time talking about the way in which Israeli politicians misused social media, post posted what they called hate speech on social media, because they were mandated to do so by their code. I mean, this is demonization. What, you know, it's, it's obvious, it's clear. Second thing, weaponization, using the language of anti-racism as a, as a Trojan horse for racism, which we've talked about. And the third, falsification, which we've talked about as well, basing your arguments on lies to which you would need, you, you would need facts to, to, uh, to combat that. But I think that I, I do have in, in my books eight pressure points, ways to sort of leverage the, 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 the sort of the armor plating of rhetoric that Israelophobes coat themselves in. Uh, and trying to find the little chinks of common sense uh, that 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 might allow you to to um, to dislodge some of those prejudices, and there are eight of them, and they they involve things like asking, you know, what's it got to do with you, for example? Yeah, if someone's not, you know, there are so many conflicts and human rights abuses in the world, including in Ukraine, for example. Why 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 Palestine? Why Palestine? Why Israel? Uh, it could be because it's a uh, it's one of the principal markers of identity, political identity these days. It could be something more sinister, but why? Why? It's a quite a hard question to answer, I think. Um, another one is, can you accept that Israel has many admirable qualities, especially when compared to other countries in the region? I mean, Israel is, Tel Aviv is the, the gay capital probably of the world. I mean, certainly of the Middle East, which I know is a low bar, but you can live freely as a gay person in Tel Aviv. That has got to be a good thing. You know, some years ago, an Arab ballerino, male ballerino, ballet dancer who was gay, drowned uh, in off the coast of Israel, Arab Israeli. Thousands of people came to his funeral. Can you imagine that happening in Egypt or Iraq or Lebanon or Syria or Jordan or Saudi Arabia or the United Arab Emirates or Algeria or Morocco? Um, and if, you, if, if people's response to this is that it sticks in the throat, they can't accept that that's a good thing without saying, oh, but what about... The Palestinians, There's, that's a, a giveaway there, isn't it? They're, they're not neutral. They're not neutral observers um, and so on. So there, there are examples of, of that. Another one is um, perhaps the most provocative. What country has a better moral record than Israel? Britain. Does Britain have a better moral record than Israel? You know, when Israel does, the Amer does America, when Israel was fighting the Six-Day War and the Yom Kippur War, Vietnam was happening. Vietnam was happening. Does Israel have a worse moral record than the United States? I mean, the United States, you know, the, the genocide of the indigenous people, we're talking about millions of people who were killed by American colonialists. To the extent that there was so much farmland that, that, that was rewilded because the Native Americans were all massacred, that it affected the atmosphere of the, of the world, science, scientists have shown. I mean, America had actual segregation, had actual apartheid. 
And, you know, Israel is supposed to, how is it, is it, you know, Israel's moral record worse than that? You know, Britain, I mean, colonialism, you know, the, the, I don't have to talk about the atrocities that we committed in India, for example, or in Malaysia. You know, there's you know, a picture I came across during the Malayan, from the Malayan emergency in my research of British Royal Marine commandos holding up severed heads of, of Malaysian insurgents. Uh, I mean, this is, you know, in living memory, 50s, 60s, 70s while Israel was struggling for its existence and so on. So, I mean, so these are the sorts of, the, the, the sorts of, um, of, of ways you can make inroads into trying to dislodge this anti-Semitism, but it, it's not easy. Jake, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. We'll be back with another guest and more discussion. Don't forget to subscribe. And in the meantime, keep reading Spiked at www.spiked-online.com. Tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash boost by tax day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply.